Welcome to Lean Braves Radio Show. I am Ron Jones, your host today. And today I'm going to do a show on some Facebook questions. So let's get into it and see what happens. All right, a few weeks ago I put out some uh, inquiries about questions that people were asking if they'd submit me a few questions. So I did have a couple people take the time to write up a few things, and um, I thought they were good, intelligent questions, so let's take a stab at it. And a little bit about my background. I've been in the fitness industry, physical education side of that for about 20 years, and I have a bachelor's in PE and a teaching credential in PE and a master's in kinesiology and a bunch of other stuff that isn't important to talk about today. But uh, my, my background mainly is in historical methods, uh, oftentimes pre-1960, but especially from the late 1800s, early 1920s. So I have a different perspective on fitness than most of the people in the industry based on my historical lens, thanks to mentors and teachers and uh, hundreds of books over the years. So Johnny writes, and uh, he's got a number of questions here. I'll just kind of read these off. My question would be this. What are basic movements or exercises which could work almost all of the muscles? And we oftentimes, you know, in in this country, in America, we think of exercise from a bodybuilding standpoint where we're doing muscle isolation. That hasn't always been the case, but at least uh, when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, that was very much the mode uh, and how we were taught in high school to lift. It was isolation of a certain muscle part, like, say, your arm or your leg or your glutes or whatever. So, But he's asking, you know, basic uh, exercises that could, could use all the muscles. And so, you know, without trying to get too um, specific, if I, if I look back into calisthenics, um, something that people would understand as a whole-body exercise would be something like a burpee. It's actually called a squat thrust historically, but that is using, obviously, your heart to do a level change from low to high, and then you're going down. You can add a push-up, come back up using your legs. It doesn't have a lot to do um, with in terms of rowing and back, um, but that's just a, you know, a straight-up body weight exercise where you're using quite a few muscles at the same time. Interestingly, a lot of people are down in uh, burpees, or the technical term is squat thrust, because uh, poor form. And so, you know, why do people have a hard time doing a burpee? It's not that the burpee is a bad exercise. It's still a valid exercise. But the issue is that people, we haven't been educating people on how to move properly for a long time. So for someone to get down that low and then jump back into a uh, basically, it's called a front lean rest. It's a plank position. A technical term is front lean rest, like you're getting ready to do a push-up before you go down. And then kick back up. You know, it requires a lot of uh, good uh, stabilization in the spine when you get down and kick out. It requires a lot of hip mobility. It requires some pretty good uh, shoulder stability to hold yourself in a plank, and that, that gets messed up pretty quickly. So, you know, if, if you're looking at body weight only, burpee's okay if you can handle the movement. Um, coming out of a kettlebell background, there, there are some, you know, movements with a kettlebell that require, you know, using a lot of different muscles at once. I'll give, I'll throw one out there that's, it's fairly well known as a Turkish get up where you're basically on your back and getting up with a weight over your shoulder. And, um, you know, you're using your whole body in a, in a slower grind type motion. And I think there's some value in that too, but I don't think there's one 
one exercise or <laughs> to be honest with you there's not one of there's not one way to do anything especially when it comes to fitness so um that's a tough question. You know, the idea, um, if you want to think about work capacity and increasing that, is to look at gravity and doing a level change. So to go from high to low, you're going from standing to low position like the burpee and then back up. You're using big leg muscles to go up and down and work with gravity. So anytime you're doing a level change, you're going to see that heart rate rise and you're going to be using the thighs and the glutes, which are big muscles that require a lot of uh, blood flow as so the heart rate goes up. So um, anyway, that was the first part of the first question. And he goes on in a specific order starting at the core. Is the cure the feet and ankles or the, uh, the TL fascia and abs, tensofascia, uh, fascia lata? Um, it's, you know, if I look back into the history books, there's a lot of emphasis on the feet. And, of course, you can't talk about the feet without talking about the ankles because that's truly, you know, our foundation of movement. And so they spent a lot of time working on the foot-ankle position and just standing. And this is one of the things that's missing out of fitness today. You know, so often we want to go to 10 and we don't even know what number one means. And what is number one? It's your standing posture before you ever move. That can be rather boring to some people today, but I, I, you know, having hundreds of references, they seem to all have a posture section that deals with standing and foot ankle position and then how to walk. And then they move into running and jumping and hopping and all those types of things. So I would say to get back to, you know, is there a starting order? Is the cure of the feet and ankles? Well, it certainly is part of it to start there. I think if you have good foot, ankle position, and movement skills there, then you're going to have a lot less issues or no issues up in um, the side of the hip and the abdominals. So I think always starting with, you know, what's going on on the ground and coming up is is never a bad idea. And then uh, Johnny goes on, is there a beginner's routine for people who are willing to try 15 to 20 minutes a day? What are the most basic essentials. Well, there's lots of routines out there that um, certainly would be able to be performed in 15 or 20 minutes. It's a very individual thing. You know, having a background in exercise psychology, that was my master's thesis, really gets into the individual and, you know, what their movement background is, what their injury background is, what they want to do, because a lot of times, you know, there's all kinds of routines, but if people don't person doesn't like it, it doesn't do much good to give it to them because they won't stick with it anyway most of the time. So um, rather than throw out a quote-unquote routine, that would be tough to answer here. Um, What are the most basic essentials? Well, I'll go back to history again, and and what they prioritized was teaching survival skills. And what are survival skills? The ability to push, pull, run, swim, hang, um, you know, roll, crawl, all those types of things. And uh, at the time of this podcast, we just saw the her- horrendous flooding in Texas, the worst our country's ever seen. So if you look at that news footage and what people were having to do to survive, you'll see those survival skills in real time. You'll see people hanging, um, you know, could have been a, hanging on something uh, with a helicopter evacuation. It could have been hanging on a tree branch, to prevent being swept away. It could have been hanging on a rope as someone was pulled from their car. Um, Definitely some swimming going on, 
pushing and pulling. I mean, and then you look at all the cleanup that could ultimately take years. There's those survival skills are extremely important. So, from a from a functional standpoint, if if you're programming, whether you're a beginner or advanced exerciser, if you don't have those survival skills in your programming, you're missing something according to history. And they really need to work outside the gym too. I mean, it's one thing, I, I've been around a lot of uh, bodybuilder type people, and they're very proficient at moving weights in a certain line and, and, and doing certain types of heavy lifting. But outside of that um, limited scope, they have a lot of movement issues and, and very, uh, a lot of difficulty doing really basic stuff. And, and so it's a lot of show but not much go in, in terms of an emergency. And, um, of course, in Texas we'll use that because it's so current at the time of the show. Very important to be able to do those types of things. So back to the question, you know, is there a beginner's routine? Well, look for things that involve that that don't work just inside the gym but also out. And it could be as simple as walking, you know, because being able to mobilize yourself outside in a good uh, walk can also lead into some running. A lot of people don't like running. They say that running is bad for your knees. It's not bad for your knees if you know how to line things up and run well, and you have to know, you have to be taught how to run. You just don't, like, grow up and know how to do that automatically. And there's a lot of technique that goes into that. That doesn't mean everybody needs to run a marathon. That's not what I'm saying. But uh, from a survival standpoint, you know, historically looking back, ideally in a perfect world, you should be able to go a couple miles. Um, in the real world, you'll probably never have to run more than 100 or 200 yards for a survival situation. I mean, think about it. You know, you might have to run across the street or run to get out of the way of somebody chasing you. But you're probably not going to have to run a couple of miles in terms of survival. But you damn well better know how to run at some level, right? Okay, so moving on with Johnny, you know, what is a dumbbell workout routine for the whole body? Um, there, there are a number of different routines, but if you go back to what I started with, with uh, a level change, if you're going to do a dumbbell routine for the whole body, it has to involve some type of level change. So there's a 3D dumbbell matrix that I picked up years ago from a guy named uh, Gary Gray, who's a very well-known um, exercise guy. You know, historically, he's still still alive, but I mean, 20 years ago when I got started, he was already a pretty good name. And I've used that with, uh, you know, corporate clients. I've used it with athletes. It combines different upper body movements with a lunge and also a turning drill, quarter turns. So I kind of like that. It's it's uh, kind of an interesting technique, um, so you can look at things like that. But to, to distill this down to a bumper sticker, you know, what's a dumbbell routine for the whole body? It needs to involve a level change, meaning you're going to have to go from standing to a squat lunge and then back up. And then you have to do some kind of pressing uh, or upper body movement with the dumbbells. Is calisthenics still important? That's, you know, one of my specialty areas is calisthenics, and historically... That was how to get large groups of people in shape in the least amount of time with the least amount of equipment and the most amount of efficiency. So, so are calisthenics still valid today? Absolutely. In fact, that's probably one of the, the biggest things we can do right now as a country to turn this around in our physical education programs is to uh, re-implement the use of calisthenics. It doesn't mean that that's all the program is about. And it doesn't mean that we're creating some kind of, uh, you know, Hitler youth, military, uh, you know, clones. It's just how to get a lot of people in shape. 
without much equipment. And one instructor properly positioned up on a, a riser that has good vocal projection skills and organizational skills can can work with a large group of people. If you look at the military application, you know, that one person can be directing, you know, 300 people at the same time. So, yeah, it's very important. Now, there are different, there are m- many different types of calisthenics. And let me define, do some definition here. Calisthenic in the singular is body weight only if you want to get technical. And calisthenics, plural, is body weight plus handheld implement. So, that would be doing some type of movement with your body, let's say a pair of Indian clubs or a pair of white dumbbells or a, or a health wand. All those are, were classical tools, uh, maybe uh, body weight movement with a, a dumbbell. So that would be the plural, the calisthenics. Okay, But in general today, people just use the plural term, so we'll stick with that. So is it still important? Yes, absolutely, 100% confident to make that statement today. What are the worst types of workouts and why is Johnny's next question. Um, you know, that's, that's really hard to answer without talking about philosophy. So here's something I've learned from history. Every single training session that I do, I should learn something and get better. And if I don't learn something and improve my skill, something's missing. Something went wrong. I failed or I wasn't paying attention or it, something's just, you know, it's just not efficient enough. So take a huge step back. Instead of thinking about, um, you know, the specific workout, who provided the workout, what organization, what gym, what types of tools, get back philosophically because that's where the real magic is. Are you improving every single time? And oftentimes if you ask somebody, hey, what did you learn in your workout today? They'll look at you like, you know, they have no idea what you're talking about because they're just grinding through something. They're reading the paper on the treadmill, and they're listening to their music, and they're not paying attention. And then they wonder why they don't get results or nothing really changes. So, you know, I, I think that's been one of the most important things I've learned from history is I should always be getting better. So as a runner, uh, I'm 57 years old, been running since the 70s. I'm still improving as a runner. I'm still improving my skill set. I still get excited about that. There's a sense of satisfaction. I'm exploring my body, my feet, my strike, my arm position, my breathing, my posture line. All those things are cycling through in a playful way as I dance through improving my skill set. There are things that happen as you get older in terms of my maximum velocity and my you know, my one rep max strength, obviously, you know, those things won't stay the same forever. But that doesn't mean that you can't improve um, the quality of your movements, even with lighter weights. And so I, that's that's the point I want to make with this. Uh, so what are the worst types of workouts? Ones <laughs> that you don't like, that are hurting you, that you're not learning from. And maybe you could have good benefits with all of that if you would just start thinking about what you're learning. But anyway, I think philosophically that's probably the best answer. There is a problem today with a lot of high-intensity interval training. It's called HIIT, H-I-I-T. Nothing wrong with high-intensity interval training, but again, it goes back to quality of movement and what you can handle, whether you're a child, adult, or senior. If you can't handle the volume and you're not lining things up right, now we're going to think very mechanically you're doing a you know potentially a lot of joint damage because you know if you're lining things up as a machine and things are lubricated um, you know there's a lot longer shelf life 
with those with those joints or articulations. But if you're not lining things up, you don't have any clue what you're doing, which is the case with most people because we stopped teaching real PE over 50 years ago, then you're going to be doing a lot of micro trauma, if not some, you know, major trauma right away on the first session. So anyway, that's kind of a, a long-winded answer to that, but it's a very good question. The next question Johnny asks, how often should you train a body part? And then we're going to go back to the philosophy of training because, you know, as I grew up in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it was more of a bodybuilding mentality or philosophy or methodology. So, um, you know, if you're looking at it from that aspect, you know, you wouldn't want to train the same body part two days in a row. If you're doing muscle isolation, that's probably kind of a good rule of thumb. However, when you're doing whole body work, um, which is more of my philosophy um, these days, you know, if I work my arms, you know, every day uh, doing whole body movements, you know, that's fine because I'm not like drilling and killing my biceps, right, with multiple uh, sets and, and reps only. It's, it's a whole body, you know, um, type of thing where I'm spreading around that load front, back, top, bottom, deep, and shallow. So, uh, you know, I think if you're wanting to do bodybuilding, that's that's a whole other thing. That's not my specialty. Um, but I think in terms of training a body part, I don't worry about that anymore because I rarely do any kind of isolation work. Once in a while, I'll do a little bit of that. And if I do, it would be like something I wouldn't do two days in a row. Next question, how many reps? That's all over the place. But I'll go back to philosophy again. Uh, one thing I learned from history is uh, the emphasis on quality and also the nuance of what you're studying, um, especially the historical methods, because they were very, very precise. And today we don't understand why they, you know, had you do all these little things that seem insignificant. But I, what I found over time is that when I implemented the nuance or I, I figured out how to find it and actually start doing it, Things happen much more efficiently and much faster. So back to the rep thing, I've I've seen great value in my own training with a one rep set, and literally taking one repetition and doing it as good as possible, and then taking a rest. Um, this got important when I started getting off the ground and working with gravity on a pull-up bar, and I started doing things like that were extremely difficult. I did not grow up with a gymnastics background or acrobatics or anything like that. And that was pretty much gone in PE when I grew up. And so I was teaching myself this after the age of 50. So it's not like I can jump up there and, and do, you know, dozens of, of reps off the ground. I mean, some of that stuff was so hard, I could only do one. Um, but I was after the quality, and I was after the improvement, and I was, you know, I was playful with it. So I, I, I think I did a pretty good job not letting my ego get in the way and get really self-critical about it. So how many reps? Um, it could be a one-rep set. And again, are you learning something? Are you improving? Um, at the end of this session, did you get better? Um, so that's a, real open, that's a real open question without one particular answer. Um, you're really paying attention. On a given day, it could be one, and, and with something else, it could be 10 or more. How does body type uh, alter a person Let's see, how does body type alter what a person should focus on? Um, that's a good question, not to get too technical here, but we know we're, we're all different. Some, are, some of us are born lean and kind of thin, and some are born, you know, really stocky. 
and large, and, and some of us are kind of in between. And so, you know, taking a big step back, if you're a bigger, larger person, you know, doing a lot of long-distance running might not necessarily be a, a great idea for you. That, that being said, I have done some training with larger guys and uh, that actually ran pretty well. So if your form is good, you can, you can still run even though you're a bigger person. But, you know, it'd be like me. I'm, I'm more of a, uh, a leaner, thinner type person genetically. And so to try to force my body into really heavy-duty powerlifting or uh, strongman type competitions would be very unnatural for me and actually not very healthy. So I think you work with what you have. And yes, you can modify your genetics a bit, and I can make myself you know, a little more strong and not as endurance-oriented, and, and a larger person can make themselves a little more endurance-oriented and not just you know, be lifting super heavy stuff. But we do have some limits, and uh, you just do the best you can and, and not try to force something that's really not there. And then he finished with, these are my fun theoretical questions, and theoretical indeed. So I enjoyed taking a stab at them. Um, Tim uh, wrote and said, what's the purpose for a particular chosen, chosen training methodology or approach? Well, purpose is something that um, I think philosophically we really need to look at. And I'm not talking about, you know, what's the purpose of me going out and, and doing a bench press tonight? Well, I want to get my chest stronger. I'm talking about a noble purpose, and this is what history has taught me over the years. What's the real purpose for us to exercise? And if if you're saying uh, you just want to get stronger or you want to do cosmetics, that's according to history, that's pretty shallow. So let's get deeper. What's the real purpose for doing this? And historically, it was called a noble purpose, and a bumper sticker definition of that was preservation of nation. And so if you think about, you know, if we can't preserve our nation, then all this other stuff doesn't really matter. You know, it just doesn't matter. And so we have to be strong as a country to preserve our, our national standing in the world. And, you know, ideally, if you look at tribal societies, the first thing they did is they established a border, they secured that border, they divided labor, and then they did their, you know, the labor and business that they needed to do. Everybody had a job. Everybody contributed. And when all that work was done and they were safe, then they worked, uh, or actually they, they spent time on leisure. And leisure, classically, was not like we think of leisure, like I'm going to play some video games. It was where you spent time reading and thinking deeply to improve your culture. But first, you have to have safety, and that's where the border thing comes in. I'm not trying to be political with what's going on in America's border wars today. I'm just saying, from a tribal standpoint, historically, this is what had to happen. You had to have that outlying border and safety first so you could go to work and get the task done. And so, back to purpose, um, when I think of purpose, that's what I think of. And so that's how I'm going to answer that. And that might not be what Tim was thinking, but that's how I think of it when I talk of and what's the purpose for what I do. If I want to get a little more into functionality, then uh, I go back to survival skills. And, you know, what, you know about 90% of my training should be survival-oriented, meaning if, if I was in Texas and I had to deal with what they're dealing with today, all these things that I've done the last year or two or 10 years should factor into me helping save my life and the lives of my neighbors 
in cleaning up that mess. And if it doesn't help me do that, then the I had the, like the wrong purpose or goal in my training. So his next uh, statement or question, is it uh, to improve or prepare for spe- specific activities or a sport? And so he's asking, you know, what's the purpose? What are you, what are you trying to prepare for? Um, a survival, basically. Preservation of nation is a noble purpose and survival. So that's how I look at it. And again, I learned all that from history. And then he goes on, such as general fitness and how to tell. Well, wrap general fitness into survival and preservation of nation, the noble purpose. Uh, Tim goes on, and when to know... Uh, to stop or simplify is in getting a shape for hunting or steep terrain. So I'm not quite sure what he means by that, but um, when to know to stop or simplify. So here's here's something I learned from history too. Um, my goal when I train is 90% perfection. And you might ask, well, how can you have 90% perfection when you train all the time? It's easy. You, you regress or modify or make it easier, and that's also what Tim's talking about. So um, I learned to do this uh, kind of at a crash course when I taught at a community college, and I had students from 18 to 92, and we were all doing the same thing. And I have World War II veterans in there, combat veterans that are, are tough men, and they're trying to hang in there. And I got 18-year-olds right out of college. So I quickly learned that I had to have a lot of different uh, levels for the same movement. And so there were some, you know, you look at the basic, uh, let's say the basic bodyweight squat, you know, how can you progress that to make it harder for the more athletic people? How can you regress that to make it a little easier for the people that are a little less mobile or not quite as strong or a little more feeble? And so uh, when to know when to stop? When I stop is when I don't have 90% perfection. Okay, and that's a huge thing out of history. That doesn't mean that I'm always at 90%, but, but ultimately that's kind of what I'm thinking about when I go in. Um, I will play around with things where that level of perfection is not there, but the weight will be pretty light, so the, the risk is way down. But that's a good thing to think about. Um, and if I don't have that, then that's when I do what Tim's talking about with simplification. I start breaking that down. I use a lighter weight. I, I go a little bit slower, or I modify somehow where I take more rest. Um, in terms of getting in shape for hunting in steep terrain, um, you've got to get <laughs> you've got to get up and use gravity. You've got to do some hill work for that. Um, you can do a lot of stuff in the gym for just general foundational strength with body weight squats or weighted squats or stairmaster. Right? There's just absolutely no substitution for getting out on a hill in the real world on a trail and and just walking up and down or doing um, hill repeats running or walking. Um, There's a bunch of concrete steps where I live here in Southern California that I go over and run a couple days a week, and that's that's really quality training. So if you have a long flight of steps, this this particular set of steps is like 156, um, you know, or even a hill in your neighborhood. You can take the appropriate rest, and then you can walk, you can jog, and you can sprint, depending on what level you're at. I think in terms of hunting, um, being able to go up a steep incline is very important. But, you know, in hunting, uh, most of that's going to be steady state and not sprint. You know, if you're chasing game that's been wounded, yeah, you might be hustling at that point. But most of what you're going to do in the backcountry is going to be very calculated. Um, so you're going to need to do some steady state work, too, in hilly terrain. That's what I would recommend. Um, he says, well, perhaps go off trail and crawling around and ducking. Uh 
um, things like that that replicate uneven angles, getting in a lower body position. Yeah, all that's important. Um, you know, one of the issues with sitting at a desk all day and then trying to go out in the backcountry is your body's not used to articulating and being on uneven ground. So again, I go back to you can prepare to a from a at one level in the gym for hunting, um, but you really have to go outside and get out on a trail and do some stomping around and and uh, maneuvering through brush and being able to be mobile through your whole body. I think spinal mobility is a real big deal and also spinal stability. Uh, mobility, meaning free movement around a joint, even the joints in your spine, and stability is control of movement. You know, how do you control the movement and stabilize and, and have that joint confirmation from your feet, ankles, knees, hips, all up into your spine when you've got that weighted pack on. I've worked with Lucas Powell over at uh, Rod and Arrow Outdoors. You might want to check out some of those podcasts that we're putting up because we get into specifics on hunting and fishing and preparation and, and things like that. And I Lucas has a, a very regimented, um, very high-quality preparation. In fact, he's, he's backcountry hunting this week as we speak. And he prepares for that like he's going to go run an ultra marathon. I mean, this guy just really gets after it because when he gets an elk and comes out, you know, he could have 140 pounds on his back, um, and so you know that's quite a that's quite a loaded elevation after you've been back there a week or so. Okay, so those are the Facebook questions. I hope uh, you learned a couple things. I I certainly did. Just you know, I think you you don't really learn something until you teach it. So when I explain these things, and I have to explain it in different ways, I'm taking questions from people. Um, it gets me to think deeper and, and uh, maybe phrase things in a different way that I haven't thought of before. And so thanks again, and I appreciate the questions, and maybe we'll do this another time. Mm-hmm.